1: What's up, Open Floor Glow? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael, the pod pina, who's been covering the NBA finals at GQ 538 and wherever else you get your NBA news. Michael, we have a series. We thought we were about to escape the bubble, but Jimmy Butler pulled us back in. A big Game 3 win for the Miami Heat. Didn't really see it coming. Uh, my mind, we were already well down the path towards a Los Angeles Lakers sweep and sort of an anticlimactic and inevitable conclusion to this grueling bubble. But Jimmy Butler had other ideas. He had a 40-point triple-double in the finals. I looked up the list last night. As far as I could tell, it's just Jimmy, uh, LeBron, LeBron and Jerry West to have a 40-point triple-double in the NBA Finals, that is pretty special. Um, On top of that, I think there was a real measure of revenge for Jimmy against LeBron, and he spoke about that a little bit in his postgame comments basically saying look I've lost enough to this guy and we've got a new team and I think he was actually trying to rally the troops and saying look we're gonna go out there and even this series on Tuesday at two games apiece so uh, from the heat perspective it's this wild change of momentum where they figured things out defensively and Jimmy Butler's unstoppable and now they may, maybe they get bam back everything's lining up you go to the Lakers post game press conference and LeBron says quote unquote we're not concerned um, it was just about the foul trouble for Anthony Davis. It was just about the, the really loose uh, turnovers that LeBron had, tying a season high of eight turnovers in that game. And they basically view it like they shot themselves in the foot. Let's start there. How much credit does Miami get for this Game 3 win versus how much blame do we give the Lakers? How do you parse that out like from a percentage basis?
2: Yeah, this is always a really tough question. I mean, I'm, I'm almost at 50-50 here because I don't want to discredit the Miami Heat for showing the fight that they did. And Jimmy's performance was spellbinding and, you know, iconic, basically, instantly iconic. Um on the other hand, like the Lakers should be totally embarrassed about losing a winnable game and clearly yeah. not exerting the defensive force and intensity in this one that they normally have throughout the entire postseason. Way um, too polite,
1: so. Michael. I'm going 20%
2: Heat,
1: 80% <laughs> Lakers. What were the Lakers doing in Game 3? Come on.
2: No, I, I did not expect, or I did expect uh, that exact uh, response from you, so I had to temper it a little bit on my end, um, but look... The early turnovers from basically every member of the Los Angeles Lakers were so sloppy. They were unforced. I mean, there's really nothing else you can you can say um, Like that, that Miami did to force those. It was just the Lakers not treating it like the NBA Finals is kind of how I saw it when I was watching the game. Uh, their offense late was clogged toilet. They didn't really make any effort at all in the fourth quarter to get Anthony Davis involved. Um So, yeah, it it was not a fine showing from the Lakers. Well, you know, LeBron had that that tweet that
1: was like, oh, I'm having a hard time sleeping. I think his mind was going so hard. I mean, it did look like maybe the entire team had just been subjected to 48 hours of sleep deprivation, you know, in that first (laughs) half where it's like, hey, good luck. Go out there and play a finals game without sleeping for three days. Right. Um Look, the turnovers reminded me. Do, there was that stretch. Do you remember in the Western Conference finals where Denver had like five straight live ball turnovers and we were all sitting around like, I've never seen this since middle school? The Lakers topped it. Like, their turnovers were more ridiculous, more inexplicable. They weren't even forced. It wasn't like, you know, where Rondo right. was like uh, running up on Jamal Murray and causing him to freak out a little bit. This was just like coming across half court and Braun just sailing passes in every direction. It did feel a little bit like his passing and vision compass was broken. Like maybe somebody put a magnet near it or something like that. He was just completely thrown off kilter. Very, very strange situation. And the worst part of it was for the Lakers, both of their superstars were were involved with kind of these like, you know, crazy, um, you know, once a playoff performance stinker, right? Because with Anthony Davis, it was the early foul trouble, the quick ticky-tack calls. And then as soon as he gets back in um, after getting two in the first quarter, he gets the third pretty quickly. And as soon as the third quarter starts, he gets his fourth pretty quickly. And he's just looking around like, is there nothing I can do on the court without somebody uh, you know, calling these fouls on me? Is that mm. what you attribute his poor game to? Or was there anything else going on? Because if we just rewind back to game two, I think most people would have started to agree with you. He's looking like the leader for finals MVP. He's completely mm-hmm. unstoppable. They don't have Bam coming back for game three. Um, you know, who's going to be the matchup? I mean, did it wind up being
2: that Scott Foster was just too tough a matchup for Anthony Davis? <laughs> <laughs> I do think that the foul trouble certainly bothered him, certainly took him out of his rhythm. Um, that's not really, I don't want to excuse the game from him. I mean, it was it was a bad game from Anthony Davis. Um, and you kind of contrast it with game two and just earlier performances in this series where, you know, he's he's like the guy locking down Jimmy Butler as the primary defensive assignment. He's the guy just absolutely erasing every opportunity in the paint. He's the guy who's uh, tip dunking every single Laker miss. Like, So I, I think that, you know, there are ways for you to impact the game physically, even if you're not involved on in the offensive game plan which he wasn't down the stretch which is not necessarily his fault but he was not the same force uh uh, on the glass that he's been He, he wasn't the same force just like basically setting screens like he just was kind of roaming around um on both ends really petrified i thought to pick up that fifth and that sixth foul um and I thought that the, the entire Lakers team was sensitive to his foul trouble as well. And you just look at kind of late when there was one play uh, in the fourth quarter where AD actually switched on to Jimmy Butler and it was a switch that, that the Heat wanted. And Alex Caruso was helping so far off of Tyler Hero that uh, Jimmy could just hit him one pass away for a, for a, a wide open three and Caruso's mindset there is basically I don't want Jimmy to drive here and to potentially have AD be in an awkward situation where he basically has to commit a foul or, or is in danger of committing a foul so I think the foul trouble did matter um but at the end of the day like you know there was a lot of issues with LeBron I thought um defensively uh, and that I'm sure we can go into but like I don't know. I mean, I just thought it was really weird that they didn't involve AD um, down the stretch when he has a matchup advantage, a gross matchup advantage on whoever's on him in this series.
1: No, for sure. And they were really slow to involve him in the first quarter too. I mean, it wasn't just the fouls. It was his lack of involvement in the offense that just started him really, really flat. I don't think he scored until he actually came back in the second quarter. I'm not even sure he took a shot. Um, There's no way that that's going to happen again. Uh, you know, in game four. That's going to be the primary adjustment, I'm sure, is going to be to to force feed Anthony Davis early and get him going because of that matchup advantage. I'm also glad you mentioned the idea of his interior defense because we've really seen that length cause problems for all sorts of ball handlers throughout this playoff run. And this just, you know, endless loop of Jimmy Butler battering ram layups straight down the paint all the way to the Mm -hmm. glass. Let's get to the free throw line. Uh, you know, half the time he's just like laying prone on the court after absorbing contact from somebody. I mean, that kind of, um, you know, consistent foray down the middle of their defense is just something that we've really never seen. And that's why Anthony Davis is there, right? To to scare people away from doing that. And yet Jimmy just does it over and over and over to the tune of uh, 40 points, I believe 11 rebounds and 13 assists. What a monster game. I want to explain a little bit uh, for people who may not remember this why this was such a satisfying win for jimmy Butler? a little background historical context if you go back to 2013 you know jimmy is basically a 23 year old defensive stopper second round series between the chicago bulls and the miami heat And Jimmy's job is to run around the court, and he played all 48 minutes, did not sit for a single second under Coach Tom Thibodeau in three of those five games over the course (laughs) of a 10-day span, Michael. And he chased LeBron around and chased LeBron around, and ultimately, um, the heat prevailed. They went on to win um, the title that year. LeBron was the Finals MVP. Uh, Mm -hmm. Two years later, Jimmy's still, you know, kind of banging away at the drum in Chicago. There's been some injuries with Derrick Rose and all that stuff. They get into a second-round series, and LeBron's on Cleveland now. Chicago, the the heavy underdog in that series, goes up 2-1 with a miraculous buzzer beater by Derrick Rose, three-pointer out of nowhere. The Cavaliers at that moment were dealing with all sorts of injury issues. They looked super vulnerable. You get to a very tense Game 4. You might remember this david Blatt, cavaliers coach wanders onto the courts trying to call time out the referees don't see it he's trying to design a final play where lebron's going to inbound lebron says sorry david blatt i'm going to get you fired in nine months and by the way we're definitely not going to run that play here's my play inbound the ball to me if you go back and watch the buzzer beater that lebron hits in game four to even that series He kind of shoves off of Jimmy Butler, gets himself open, and drains that shot right in Jimmy's face. And he does it at the United Center crowd, silencing Mm -hmm. the entire crowd. Now, the Cavaliers then went on to win games five and six to finish off that series, basically snuffing out another hope for the the Bulls to advance. And Jimmy only wins uh, one playoff series combined in the next four years after that. And he also lost the first two games Of this final series so after that LeBron buzzer beater Jimmy had lost five straight head-to-head playoff games against LeBron in addition to having already previously lost the two playoff series that they had been matched up in so this is not like LeBron versus KD or like LeBron versus Steph or a LeBron versus Kawhi Leonard type rivalry but if you're on the wrong side of LeBron throughout the course of your career and you go like five straight years without a chance to like get back at him (laughs) you have to realize how sweet this particular victory was for Butler because it was clearly the game of his life they needed the game of his life to be able to get over a team that was clearly favored um I'm sure you saw that stat bouncing around that Jimmy's the first player to record more points rebounds and assists in the same game I think in the playoffs (laughs) compared to LeBron that's a ridiculous accomplishment. Maybe just, you know, put that, uh, you know, first line of uh, his obituary 50 years from now. I mean, that's, uh, you know, something you could definitely write home about. So I think f- for, um, you know, Miami's side, you do want to temper your expectations because so many things went wrong for the Lakers. Like the most likely outcome of the series to me is still Lakers in five. However, Jimmy Butler waited more than five years, really, to have this
2: moment. And it was quite the moment. Long live Jimmy! Uh, legendary performance. I think that the Miami Heat might consider hanging that Mark Spears tweet um, in the rafters of their their arena, um, showing that that Jimmy was the first player ever to outplay LeBron um, in points, rebounds, and assists in a, in a finals game. Jimmy is I, I, so. There's there's this article that I that might be up already uh, by the time our listeners hear this on five thirty eight that I've been working on about. How uh, LeBron has been hunting uh, the right matchups that he wants, uh, uh, using guards to set screens for him. This is something that we talked about after game one, uh, you and I. Um, Last night, what was so amazing to me was uh, that's exactly what Jimmy Butler did in the fourth quarter. Basically, every touch that he had, uh, they... LeBron was guarding him, and they brought up uh, either Tyler Hero or Duncan Robinson, um, Kendrick Nunn when he was on the floor, uh, and, and Jay Crowder to set screens for Jimmy to get the right matchup. And it was completely out of... Uh, out of the norm for how the Miami Heat, their egalitarian offense, kind of normally operates, even in crunch time, where Jimmy doesn't take over like that usually. That's just not who he is. So to see Jimmy kind of transform into LeBron with the season on the line, their backs against the wall, and succeed the way he did, was it was awesome. It was just really cool to watch, and it, you, you just can't help but be so pumped for Jimmy Butler right now.
1: Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you come on here all the time preaching the the gospel of Eric Spolstra, and I, we all know you love Bam. Um, are Do you consider yourself like a Jimmy Butler guy? He is a player who I first profiled in 2015. I think it was his first cover story. It was my first cover story at Sports Illustrated. I really enjoyed the process of talking to him back then because he was just getting his first taste of success and fame. It was his breakout, most improved player season. He was kind of getting in the All Star mix. He knew he had a big contract waiting for him in the mm-hmm. summer. He had famously said he was going to bet on himself and and basically double what the Bulls were kind of offering him. Uh, you know, with the with the course of um, the play that season. And, you know, guys change once they're famous. It just always happens. Um, You know, of course, his career went a lot of different directions in the ensuing five years, but there is a ruthless competitor, um, you know, there. There's a guy who's been through a lot of childhood trauma who I think wears it, you know, in all of his relationships. I think there's a guy who's finally found a home in Miami that feels like it will be a long-term fit after, you know, a long time of searching for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a player who you know, I'm not sure we would ever consider to be an all-time great. Like he's not going to get into that that conversation. But here he is having a very memorable uh, postseason run, knocking off um, the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, taking care of the Boston Celtics, you know, multiple teams that you would probably say were were favored mm-hmm. in those series. And doing it his way, right? And you know, is it going to lead to a title? Probably not. Um, Is it going to lead to probably the deepest satisfaction of his career? I imagine so. And I'm just curious, like, are you a Jimmy guy? Uh, Do you do you view it like that, or have you always, have you at all like bought into the anti-Jimmy voices? And there are many who say, "Come on, this guy's a malcontent. He doesn't play nice with others. He doesn't." Um, You know, he'll bully his teammates. He doesn't make everyone better. You know, he's trying to kind of guilt trip people into acting a certain way. You know, he's too macho of an alpha and all that stuff. I mean, this has been a polarizing figure in the NBA. And right now it's like kind of his moment. It's his validating moment, right?
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, my perspective on Jimmy is, is unique in a similar vein to what you were saying about how you, 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 wrote a cover story about him, Um, right as he was kind of coming into his own in Chicago. um, I traveled to uh, Calabasas the summer before he went to Minnesota. So he was already traded, he was on the Timberwolves, but he had yet to play a game there. And I hung out with him for a couple days at his mansion in in Calabasas slash Malibu. And like ever since then, I've just been such a jimmy believer (laughs) like he is uh he's just the intensity is obviously there so michael is this uh, why
1: you're an early morning person i mean you told us at one time it was about a trip to asia that got you onto your early morning cycle (laughs) but is it really that you were just waking up at 4 a.m to work out with jimmy and now you're uh you know you, you believe in that stuff
2: no, actually, during that reporting trip, I declined the opportunity to wake up it's at at five thirty in the morning and and go to the beach with him. Uh, so no, that was not at that that stage in my life. I was still kind of wanting to get up when I wanted to get up. Um, so, but no, he's he's like I me- I just remember you know hanging around doing a photo shoot, just watching observing him by the the swimming pool, you know, drinking beers, and later on like when it was just me and him, we went into this like private movie theater and, uh, in the house and he has, uh, you know, he cluts he shuts the door, doesn't let the publicist in. Um, he's like super, just like awesome. I, I, like I don't even know. It was like, this, it was such an opportunity that rarely comes about as you know, where like, I know I'm getting a little inside baseball here, but um, to be one-on-one for over an hour with a guy who's completely letting it all out and... And who's very uh, charming and has a lot to very, say. Very, very charming, has a lot to say. You know, r- right as we sit down in the seats, you know, he gets up, he, he, he walks over to, uh, to grab a blanket, um, asks me if I'm cold. <laughs> he,
1: this is, is getting foot. a little romantic,
2: Michael. What's happening? No, it, 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 that's what, uh, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, this is the beginning of my love affair with Jimmy Butler, um, and so, like I, I, I've just always admired a lot of uh, of his his strengths and kind of looked over like the way he explained himself to me and the way he explained his behavior, because that was at the beginning of, okay, he's a little you know it was it was Jimmy Butler versus Fred Hoiberg at that time, and the Bulls clearly cho- chose Fred Hoiberg, and. Uh, asking him about that, asking him about kind of being disgruntled with teammates a little bit, which was a very real thing. And like, seeing it from his point of view and his explanation, and basically, which was, I work exceptionally hard. I don't take anything for granted. When I see people in this league who do not work as hard as me, it, it aggravates me. And it's really hard to look at that and not like, agree with where he's coming from, right? And so that's why, you know, systems and cultures and fits, they're all so important. And so for Jimmy to go to Miami, where everybody else is working exceptionally hard, and if you don't work hard, you don't play or you get traded, um, it just made so much sense for him. And so it's really cool to see him succeed now Um in a place where uh, just, you know, it's just a match made in heaven and so much about basketball is context related at this level. And so that's why I know we're going to rank these guys in a minute. But that's why ranking Jimmy is so difficult, because it's real hard to separate the situation he's in from who he is as a player, if that makes any sense. I think he's a really great player. I think the situation and how he's handled it just elevates him to a different level.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, especially like this this Paul George versus Jimmy conversation. Um, the one thing you can say about Jimmy is that he's squeezed every single ounce out of his potential and out mm-hmm. of his gifts, and he will never leave you feeling like, well, Paul George, you know, didn't quite get over the hump this year. Is he ever going to get over the hump? Is he trustworthy? Like, you know exactly what you're getting with Jimmy, and to me, that's a real virtue, and it's something that can sometimes get underrated relative to pure talent, right? We fall in love with the pure talent and we think, well, a guy's a little bit longer. He's got a smoother jump shot. Um, You know, he's smoother on the ball. Well, maybe that means he's going to be- Right. Shoots three-pointers, yeah, and shoots them well. Um, All those things can kind of, you know, distract you a little bit. But there is um, clearly, as we saw last night, a lot of value to doing it Jimmy's way. Now, we're also kind of judging him right now, uh, you know, at the very peak of his career. You always got to be careful of judging a guy based on his best day or his worst day. But this was kind of like the clearest articulation of his value. To double back on the whole, he needs the right work ethic. He needs the right culture thing. Uh-huh. Um, I will play am- amateur psychologist here and just say that stuff is deeply rooted in in his personality because of his childhood. As his adoptive mother told me in 2015, he developed this mentality as a high schooler, essentially when he was homeless and couch surfing from place to place, that basically he could not stop or slow down or life and, uh, you know, expectations and responsibilities and maybe his own behaviors would catch up with him. So it was in those formative years that he kind of came up with this like all gas, no breaks mentality where just like, you know, he just felt like he had to stay one step ahead and he got into some trouble when he was in high school. And if that family had not stepped in and adopted him, it was uh, one of his high school teammates and and the family basically just let him uh, Mm -hmm. live with them for a pretty extended period of time. Had he not had that, there are some very clear alternative histories here where we have no idea sure. who Jimmy Butler is, right? And um, his relationships with both of his parents were kind of strained at that point of his life. I think he's made some progress on, on um, you know, repairing um, those relationships with his biological parents. And I, you know, give him a lot of credit for doing that. He does not talk about it a lot. It's clearly still something that he holds, um, you know, very dear, but you know at the same time when you're going through that kind of a lifestyle where you're you know living hand to mouth a lot of times he didn't know if he was going to have lunch you know he's almost like practically asking people can we sh- can I share your you know bag of chips or something like that uh, you know in high school i mean some you know really traumatic moments there um, i think it also leads to a lack of trust obviously right and i think it also leads to the potential for emotional outbursts because when you're constantly living kind of a paranoid or fearful lifestyle you don't have a level of stability and you don't the people who you're supposed to be able to trust aren't there for you that warps your personality basically forever and so you can see a lot of times when he gets into situations with authority figures he either bonds with them because you know he is able to kind of get over it and then it's like the deepest trust you could ever possibly imagine i think um You know, his college coach, Buzz Williams, is a perfect example of a guy who got through to Jimmy who was really Mm -hmm. hard on him and who was able to establish that connection. Hoiberg, the exact opposite personality, never had a shot, right? And it's just another example of terrible Bulls management and ownership, you know, thinking that this was going to be the guy to connect with Butler never in a million years, right? That that, that uh, relationship was doomed from the start. It's no surprise that Spolstra right, and Thibodeau are the kinds of coaches who are going to see eye to eye with Jimmy. Um, it's also no surprise, especially in hindsight, that players like Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, and Ben Simmons weren't going to be able to make it work with jimmy is just there's mm-hmm. psychologically he's not able to kind of bond with every single person out there um you know he is very brash he is very confrontational And he's also not afraid to burn bridges in part because of what I was describing about his childhood, almost like nomadic lifestyle, where you have the luxury of just continuing to move from spot to spot to spot, because that's how you've sort of been uh, living your entire life. And you don't you don't even worry about burning bridges. That's no longer um, a priority. You know, for most of us, we want to leave most situations on good terms. I think with Jimmy, he says, whatever, screw it. I'm only focused on the future. And, you know, there's that whole uh, story. Oh, he took the the rear view mirrors out of his minivan, right? Because he didn't want to have to look backwards. And a lot of this stuff, I think to outsiders, it almost seems like a joke or it's over the top. And, you know, Jimmy is a goofy guy. He does lean into his eccentricities for sure. But at the same time, like that is very symbolic of who he is as a person. Like if, if. 29 teams were fed up with him and said oh he ruined our franchises right like like you know the Minnesotas and the Phillies of the world oh he left us in ruins blah 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 I think he would be fine with it as long as he had that one team left that he could go to and and start fresh right and um, yeah that's unique there's not very many even high-level NBA players who have that type of mentality you just don't see it it, it, it makes him stand out from the crowd
2: when you're as confrontational also as he is, and he is very confrontational, that's his nature with his best friends, with people he doesn't know. Um, so he was coaches. screaming at
1: you in that movie theater? He,
2: he was not, but I witnessed uh, him, uh, you know, giving it to everyone else who was there for a majority of the time, be it the photographer, um, be it just his friends when they were playing dominoes. Um, where you don't even know sometimes if he's joking cause he's not smiling <laughs> and like even his, his closest friends and his confidants were, it, it gets like a little uncomfortable. I think sometimes no. he's um,
1: constantly testing people.
2: Exactly. And so if you want to have that type of persona, you need to back it up with your production and your skill level. <laughs> if you're, if you're a professional basketball player, um, or well, you will be ostracized. I'm
1: not even sure if I should tell this. I'll just give a short version of it. I I got my fill of that. Um, I was doing I was doing some fact checking on that magazine story, and it, it's mm-hmm. annoying. You know, I mean, it's it's not fun. You know, picture the most painful, uh, you know, surgical procedure or doctor's visit that you can imagine, and that's sort of what the magazine fact checking process was like, especially back in 2015. And so I needed him to confirm a few details after we had already sat down for multiple hours of interviews and all this stuff. And he lost his stuff on me, man. He flipped out. He was screaming. He was cussing me out. Again, this is pretty unusual, I would say. Um, You know, he's just yelling at me on the phone. And, uh, you know, I let him go for a while. I thought he would get over it, and he just was not getting over it. And, you know, eventually I basically had to, like, curse back at him, which is absolutely not in my nature. I think our listeners know that I don't think I ever curse on this podcast. At least I haven't for years and years. I make a point not to. Um, And every once in a while, you know, I'll let an F bomb off in real life. But um, certainly not at an NBA player when we're arguing about fact checks for a magazine, but it was like the only way to get through to him. It was like, "Look, dude, you don't know who I am, so shut the bleep up." We're gonna work through this process, and you're gonna get your cover. And like, I, I'm I'm sitting over there imagining you're like, you can't even picture that happening, but it happened. <laughs> it was the only way that we could get to the finish line, and you know, no hard feelings. I think it's fine, but um, it was unique. I guess I put it that way. And and whenever like young journalists always ask me like, what's the most challenging interview you've ever had? I do go back to that one because like the stakes of that story, you know, do you want to be on the cover or not? Like this is something that you've wanted. Like this is a a major moment of validation for you. It's going to have that Chicago Bulls red. It's going to be on newsstands all across the country. You're going to want to blow it up and put it in your house probably. Um but you're gonna need to like help me answer these three questions, or the whole thing falls apart. And he was just so stubborn that he couldn't get over that mental hurdle for a good thirty or forty minutes. So that's my short version of Jimmy Butler. I'm sure a lot of people have uh, even more entertaining and you know elaborate, uh, you know, confrontations can I, can along I, the way.
2: Can I jump in real, real quick for two seconds? Um, when I was sitting down with him during our extended chat. I thought that I was going to get that side of Jimmy with some of the questions I had prepared. Um, You know, I was reading quotes back to him from people like Fred Hoiberg and from younger players on the Bulls who uh, were displeased with his temperament throughout his tenure there.
1: He invites you to his private movie screening and you're just (laughs) trolling him with annoying questions (laughs) to see if he's going to flip out
2: on you. He gave you a blanket, Michael. What are you doing? I turned down the blanket. But... He, uh, you know, I I was trying to ask real journalistic questions. I didn't want it to be, you know, um, letting him just kind of fuel the narrative, which he really wanted to do. And, I mean, he answered them, like, all the questions with, uh, like, eloquence and, and depth and honesty, I thought. Um, and he wasn't ever angry at me. So maybe it was because... Uh, you were doing it over the phone, and maybe I, I have no idea. Maybe he just liked me because I'm such a personable person. But uh, um, these
1: were they were these were particularly personal questions. That uh, that's how okay. I put it, and that's what upset him. And. Um, I think it was also just that, like, the story had seemingly been done for a couple weeks, and we were just, like, finally ready to run it out for the midseason report, and it's kind of this blindside thing of, like, hey, by the way, we have, like, three more things we need you to do, and (laughs) that's obviously a hassle, and look, bottom line is it's a hassle for the writers, too, I can promise you that, like, those last-second fact checks will just ruin your whole week, but... Um, They're important. Facts do matter. And, uh, you know, it's worth getting screamed at every once in a while. You get a good story out of it. All right. Here's a couple of quick ranking questions for you. Let's start with this one. I think it's more fun. It's a little more devious, Michael. Mm -hmm. Chicago Bulls, Minnesota Timberwolves, Philadelphia 76ers. You can be their owners. You can be their fan bases. Who had the most painful time watching Jimmy go absolutely nuts in game three, knowing that it could have potentially been for their team if they just happened to have something resembling heat culture and they could have kept him happy. Who's having the roughest watch for game three?
2: I'll start with the easiest watch, because I think that that is the most simple, straightforward answer, and that would be the Minnesota Timberwolves, because I'm sure that they would have loved to have Jimmy for the long term. But Jimmy kind of broke up with them before they had a chance to break up with him. You know what I mean? Like, they max out Andrew Wiggins, which is just, like, a colossal, uh, terrible decision um, for a variety of reasons, and that kind of set him off. It was like, you're going to pay this dude who does not work as hard as me this much money. That also extended to Carl Anthony Towns, although I think that the Carl Anthony Towns contract was totally valid. Um, So I think that that's, like... You know, it's bad for the Timberwolves fans. I'm sure they don't feel great about watching Jimmy Butler be the best player on a team that is three wins away from winning the NBA championship, um, but I don't think it compares to the other two. Um, so my and, thought on that
1: real quick is just that okay. you know, they usually say, oh, a locker room can handle like one bad apple, right? And as, you know, as long as you don't have two, you're going to be able to yep. be okay and get along. I feel like Jimmy can handle one nice guy, not two. And if it had only been Carl (laughs) and it hadn't been Carl and Andrew, especially with Andrew's contract, I think that that could have have worked better, or at least he would have had a little bit longer of a buy-in because Mm -hmm. I think he would have felt like he could have exerted more pressure on Carl and him and Tibbs together could build Carl up maybe, and there would have been some way that that could have worked out just a little bit more successfully, but I think when you're sitting and staring and realizing, look, the next five years of your career are going to be you know, spent working in around these two guys, are they the right two guys, you could just tell why he would not come to that conclusion, especially when you're comparing that to his treatment of, say, Embiid or Tyler Hero or guys who he feels like are completely all the way bought in, competitive, and, and on the same page as him, you can understand that. I also think this idea, you know, they talk about Minnesota nice jimmy not minnesota nice right there's some clear some clear philosophical approaches to life that are just inherently different and by the way same thing for thibodeau and talking to people with the timberwolves who were around that organization during that time period they were all miserable not because of jimmy but largely because of thibodeau's approach and just his demeanor and how he handled Mm -hmm. things and, and his power and his influence and so i think that the jimmy thing was just a byproduct of that so I agree. I think that they would rather lose without Jimmy than win with Jimmy and Thibodeau,
2: to be honest. I, they're and- also, yeah, but also like they're in a fine situation now, right? Like they can, you know, they're perpetually building towards the future, which is very frustrating. But I think the position that the Timberwolves and like their fans should be fine with where they're at, all things considered.
1: Okay, I agree. so we're we're on the same page so far.
2: You've nailed it. This is where it gets tricky though. who's next? Yeah. Uh, Philly Man. or or Chicago. This is tough. Um I went back and forth on this. I think next up if we're just going in the order of of least painful to most painful. Next up for me is the Bulls. disagree and okay. <laughs> I think that. Look, the Bulls were the first team to not believe that Jimmy could be the best player on a title team. And they have been a complete train wreck uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, not just because they traded Jimmy. There's no saying that if they kept Jimmy, they would have success because I think that the front office and ownership and all that has been um, pretty tough. And, you know, coaching decisions as well probably would not have gone the way that they did. Um, but at the end of the day, like, they're franchise philosophy was that Jimmy is not the guy and Jimmy is the guy. <laughs> so that's that's tough that's a tough pill to swallow. So I think um, Chicago
1: deserves to be the team that feels the worst about this. and here's why. it's just been an utter disaster since he left. They have nothing that they could possibly spin in their uh favor about oh well at least we have this like at least we have this like if you're Philly you could say well we still have Embiid we still have enough cachet to make the second round of the playoffs and be one Ka- Kawhi <laughs> shot away from a conference finals you could still say hey you know we you know so you got some payoff some real payoff from the Butler experience you can still say hey we have enough mm. cachet to get Doc as our coach Look, you and I know Philly's headed for kind of a dark and disappointing, you know, next five years, and they yes. certainly made the wrong choice between Jimmy or Tobias or Jimmy and uh, Simmons, if you want to look at it that way. However you mm-hmm. want to say they should have put that team together, they it backfired, right? But if you're Chicago, you've already had that entire five-year experience of uh, losing Jimmy and not really being able to build around it, and you also have to look back, and history will judge you. For taking Hoyberg instead of Jimmy, Hoyberg is a guy who may never get a co- another chance as an NBA head coach. People are going to look back and say they had Jimmy Butler, who they could have, you know, put almost any coach around, built this entire organization around, found a way to remold in his uh, in his image, and, and been a consistent playoff team. Right? Instead, they brought out Fred Hoyberg and Jim Boyland and turned the, their organization over to two of the least successful coaches with the strangest personalities that we've seen in the last decade. That was your move? That was your big plan? And not only that, it worked out so badly that you finally had to fire a long entrenched uh, front office and start from scratch in a situation that to me is gonna take another three to five years to get to a reasonable perspective. Had they just built around Jimmy, like Houston was building around James Harden at the same time. And by the way, I was writing this in 2016 and 2017 because Houston was really showing, hey, look, if you cater to the star, if you understand who he is, if you know his strengths and weaknesses, if you bring in like-minded people, you'll have some level of success. Is that ever going to have turned that Chicago team um, into... You know, a championship contender probably not. Would they have ever made it as far as this Miami Heat team? Probably not. How much of Miami's uh, current run is uh, boosted by uh, the bubble circumstances? I would say some of it. But Chicago <laughs> has been completely irrelevant since the moment they sure. traded Jimmy Butler. They got completely fleeced in that particular trade, and they're going to be relevant for, or irrelevant for another five years going forward. I think that they have got to look at that Jimmy Butler experience and think. God, we had this guy. We drafted him. We developed him. We had the coach who understood him. Uh, you know, his first love as an NBA coach, you know, Tom Thibodeau, and uh-huh. we blew it all for a couple of really crappy seasons with Fred Hoiberg, who is destined to be kind of, uh, you know, uh, a flyover state college coach for the rest of his life. So,
2: oh, okay, I, I hear all of that, and this was a difficult decision between the Bulls and the Sixers but like the way you're framing it if the Bulls did keep Jimmy like if their ceiling isn't a championship contender then like what are we even talking about right well, they're not like, they're
1: barely in the NBA right
2: now they're practically a okay, Jimmy yeah, franchise yeah. look like no, you, know. could,
1: you could be a second tier Eastern Conference team year after year And be in the mix, they could have easily been the Eastern Conference Rockets to me if they had played their cards right. You know, you've got that signature star who, you know, mm. he's going to get a little bit of MVP love, a little bit less than Harden, uh, but you know, you have a clear style. You're going to be easy to root for. Jimmy's going to bring it every single night. You're going to sell a lot of jerseys. You're going to be a tough out in the playoffs. You are probably going to go out to LeBron every year you face him. Um, But once he leaves, you're going to be in that mix, (laughs) that group of, hey, like, we've got a shot. And that's way, way, way better than what Chicago's been dealing with. I mean, but, look, okay. they're trying uh, to uh, talk uh, themselves into Lowry, Markkinen, and a first— Okay, you know, okay, 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 okay,
2: but, okay. But we both agree that Chicago's front office ownership, coaching, the culture was terrible, regardless of whether they kept Jimmy or not, right? So I don't think that, the, that there was a path to being anything close to the Eastern Conference, Houston Rockets, in hindsight, because James Harden— Perennial MVP candidate, perennial uh, scoring champion. Um, you know they win sixty six games or whatever they did in two thousand eighteen in the Western Conference. They they get Chris Paul. They have this brilliant front office that engineers that trade. That continuously is ahead of the curve with analytics and 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 keeping. Uh, Cutting edge, cutting edge mentality as an organization. Like the Bulls just weren't that. The Bulls aren't the Heat either. Like I'll, I'll see that the Heat might be the Eastern Conference version of what the Houston Rockets were at that time period. But the Bulls just could have never done it, which is why I, I can't put them where I can't put them in terms of the pain that the the fan base should should feel comparatively to the Philadelphia 76ers fans.
1: Well look, if you have a superstar level player, and the thing with, with Jimmy is like from a you know a real plus minus standpoint, like he's pretty consistently like top five, top ten type mm-hmm. impact guy, right? So if you have that level of a performer and you identify early that this guy is special and you resist your temptation to be the most backward thinking front office this side of New York and you <laughs> okay. and you and you start like making sound decisions, or if your ownership And you, you know, deeply understand the game and you realize exactly what you've unearthed, right? And they were just backwards on the Jimmy experience the whole time. They didn't properly value him going into his first, um, you know, extension negotiations. They paid the price for that. Um, I think they probably ruffled his feathers a little bit, you know, through that entire process, making him kind of, you know, go out there and, and earn his deal, quote unquote, in that breakout season. And then, you know, on top of it, like if you are going to trade him, you've got to do better than freaking Zach Levine. I mean, so I just think that, look, there's an alternate universe that they recognize what they have around Jimmy. Their front office is actually baseline competent. And because of the lower standards in the Eastern Conference, they can consistently be like a top four, top five team and, and win some series in advance a little bit. That's not asking that much in the Eastern Conference, right? Um, it's just like, no, be, I, uh, be a little bit better than the Indiana Pacers. And when you have a talent no, like Jimmy Butler, <laughs> you could have done that every year, and they just blew it. Anyway, we, we've yelled about the Bulls enough. Tell me why okay. the Sixers, for you, are the, uh, the most painful team to watch. Is it just the proximity of they had them last
2: year and now they don't? The Sixers were a title contender last year. Jimmy Butler was a humongous reason why they were a title contender and one shot away from advancing to the conference finals where they could have beat the Milwaukee Bucks and then won the championship because the Golden State Warriors evaporated. Um, So you get rid of this guy who's closing games for you. Um, He's, I guess he's your second most important player easily in a landslide. One of the best two-way players in the league. And you basically are just like, we can't. Bring him back because of the years, the money, the fact that we made this really dumb trade for Tobias Harris and now we have to pay him, uh, the fact that we have uh, a franchise point guard, power forward, whatever you want to call him, who can't shoot. And so he's th- thus needs the ball in his hands and is an awkward fit with everybody else in the league, basically. Um, and you just kick Jimmy to the curb and you exchange him for Josh Richardson, you sign Al Horford. And this is where you are now. So like you kind of also look at the fact that Jimmy didn't get along with Brett Brown. So in a way you also chose Brett Brown over Jimmy, which sure I, I just don't you knew that if you knew that J- Brett Brown was gonna be a lame duck if you didn't win the championship or get to the finals anyway. so um, I just think that I, I I would have it up to here if I was a sixers fan and I was watching Jimmy Butler dominate right now knowing that, he was a clear difference maker for my own team the previous season. Uh, It's just, it would be too much to swallow for me, honestly, because uh, look, Ben Simmons is never having a 40 point triple double in the NBA finals. Like Tobias Harris is never having a 40 point triple double in the NBA finals. These decisions were ridiculous when they happened. They're more ridiculous now. And that's got to be painful.
1: I'm trying to picture what the conditions would be for a Tobias Harris 40-point triple-double. Um, I'm wondering if it's like they let the kids, <laughs> you know, the middle school kids, play on the court at halftime. Like maybe that the kids just stay on the court for the second oh, half. Geez. Can you think Tobias can get a 40-point triple-double? <laughs> the assist would still be hard for him, honestly. I think it would it'd be mm-hmm. difficult for him to get to 10 assists there. Great points. Um, look, it's definitely emblematic of their entire screwed-up decision-making process over the last two or three years. What's strangest to me is that they got some evidence last year during the playoffs that Jimmy was going to be really helpful in the playoffs despite all the weird fits, right? Like, who was the guy who you really trusted in last year's playoff run for Philly? To me, it was Jimmy, one, then a gap, then Embiid was really hit or miss in last year's playoffs, right? Some really strange no-shows, dizzy dealing with injury issues, sickness, all these other questions. So mm-hmm. he's two... And then Simmons is barely rating because, you know, who knows what he's doing in the playoffs, right? So like you had evidence right there in front of you who, who is the most important person. Now, you obviously have bigger long-term concerns. You've got the egos. You've got the marketing and the positioning and the interpersonal dynamics where, Um, You know, I think that group was like a little bit mentally tougher than the Minnesota Timberwolves, but not that much mentally tougher, right? And, you know, Jimmy was the the easy fall guy because he was so demanding and he was trying to pull them to a standard they didn't want to necessarily go to or they didn't feel like they could go to as a group. And you can include Brett Brown in that as well. I mean, it's just, again, personality conflicts. Brett Brown is not as meek as Fred Hoiberg, but he's like halfway there. He's main nice. I guess I would put it that way, right? Well.
2: Well, real quick, like, Josh Richardson comes from Miami, right, and goes to Philly, and right after the season ends, he says that Brett Brown does not hold players accountable. So, what does that tell you?
1: Right. Well, he's also used to sports trust, so, I mean, that that is, uh, you know, that's a different standard. It just tells you that Miami plays by one set of rules. I mean, they're measuring Mm -hmm. guys' body fat, and, like, you know, they're they're running guys into the ground. It's certainly different in Miami, but, um, yeah, there's no question, you know, just culture-wise— Um, you know, Philly has been not good enough these last couple of years. And again, you're supposed to have some high level decision maker, analyzing the talent, analyzing the performance in the big moments and saying, look, if we want this thing to really go, there's one person who we can trust here. And it's definitely not Tobias Harris. And, um, somehow they, they came out of that one completely backwards. All Mm -hmm. right. Um, let's do one final Jimmy Butler ranking before we move on here. Um, when you're looking at the other forwards and wings around the league, where do you have Jimmy at this point um, in terms of y- your rankings and who's who's definitely above him and then who's in that same tier maybe as him? And like if you're drafting, where does he fall?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I hinted at this before and I can't remember if we talked about it on an earlier episode or not, but I just think that what makes Jimmy so fascinating is he kind of defies the player rankings. He makes them more dumb than they normally are. Um, Not dumb, are guys, Michael. I made my name on the top 100s. I know, 100s. I know, great. I know. I apologize. I apologize. Your top 100s hold a special place in my heart. In Not the heart only intelligent, millions. but flawless is is what people would usually say uh, about them. I, w- I, I wouldn't go that far. But, um, <laughs> you know... Uh, I think that there are guys who are clearly better than him in his position who I don't think could have done what he did in this specific situation in Miami. Like, I think Kevin Durant is better. I think Kawhi Leonard is better. I think LeBron James is better. But do all of those guys let Kendrick Nunn lead the Miami Heat in shots during the regular season, knowing it's probably best for the team? Or let Bam Adebayo in his first season as a starter, full-time starter, you know, bring the ball up the court and and, and initiate offense from the elbow? Does, does, does KD and Kawhi and LeBron, do they let Tyler Hero run pick and rolls and take shots that no rookie should ever attempt and encourage it? Um, so... I, th- I just think it's really difficult to, and this is with all, you know, contextual player ratings and rankings and, and how we kind of view all this stuff. But I just think Jimmy is such a, a special situation. And this is such a special case because if you asked me, I would say, you know, if I'm trying to pick a player to start a team, he's probably like, he's somewhere in the top 12, but he's behind a certain set of players um, that. You know, He's in like kind of a second tier. He's not a superstar in my eyes. So yeah, you're hitting on a lot of the
1: top 100 dilemmas that we face. So <laughs> I think for, for this particular ranking, this is not about starting a franchise for the next 15 mm-hmm. years, because obviously you're going to take mm-hmm. a guy like Jason Tatum over Jimmy Butler in that situation, yes. right? Um, this is, in a, you know, we also talk about the vacuum test, right? Where yeah. you have to imagine Jimmy Butler on a random group, not necessarily the best culture fit for him in the entire right. NBA, which is like the currently the Miami Heat, right? So the average situation for him is probably something closer to like Philly where, you know, you've got poor situation uh, in Minnesota, you know, and then you've got some other situation, like if you went to Phoenix, you could just know that that would be a disaster right off the top, right? Um, Sacramento Kings, it would never work, right? So somewhere in the middle is like Philly, and then Miami is that perfect situation. So if you're taking Jimmy Butler in an average vacuum with an average collection of teammates for a one-year exercise, right? So like, basically. Uh, say, starting in October and and coming forward um, into these playoffs, who Mm -hmm. is definitely above him?
2: We're doing just wings or we're doing this everybody? Yeah, wings wings is great. Okay. So, I mean, LeBron, obviously Kawhi. uh, I guess Giannis is a wing. (laughs) I don't even know what Giannis is. Um, But I'll say that Giannis is ahead of Jimmy. Um, Luka? Do you yep. have Luca above Jimmy? For yeah, sure. I'm sure you do. Yeah. Luca and Kevin Durant, obviously, who's injured, yep. would both be there. Yep. Yep, I have KD above him. I have Harden above him also. So I consider him more of a point, but that's fine. Yes. I agree. Yeah, I mean six seven. Yeah, sure. Um And then I mean, I don't really have anyone who's clearly ahead. I have other guys kind of in the mix in the lower tier. Um, you know, Paul George uh, Gordon Hayward. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, Jason Tatum is definitely in that tier for me still. Um, and then just like other types of players, you know, like Dame. I have Dame in this tier. I have Chris Paul in this tier. I have Joel Embiid in this tier. Um, so that's kind of just how I view, view Jimmy just like in the, with the vacuum test that we're doing right now.
1: No, we're, we're pretty much aligned. I mean, I think that the tier below Jimmy looks something like Tatum, chris middleton paul george not necessarily in that order probably tatum then paul george then chris middleton but i think the only guys who are definitively above jimmy are like the a-list mvp candidate every year guys lebron katie Kawhi, luca if you want to call them those wings Giannis. i mean i think that's the group so that's a pretty special place for him to be in and i do think that like One takeaway I had from game three is that, you know, I should have known and we all should have known that Jimmy wouldn't go out that quietly, right? He's never gone quietly. (laughs) He's, you know, he's always making noise on his way out of every situation. And he is a very, very talented player. And he will give every single thing he's got, even if it leaves him laying on the hardwood multiple times. And even if he's playing through the sprained ankle from game one, and even if he doesn't have two of his best teammates who are injured, uh, he's going to bring it, and he made up uh, for the significant talent gap between those two teams in, in game three. And I do think that uh, you know, with this podcast here, we've tried to you know salute him for doing that.
0: You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Elden Kidd, American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
1: All right, Michael, we've gone on way, way too long about Jimmy Butler, but hey, that happens. I did want to double back on one question we got from last week we got so excited talking about Celtics trolling that I forgot to answer Tom from Australia's question. He says, could Ben please talk more about what life is like in the bubble right now, especially as the number of teams has decreased? It's a great question, Tom. I wrote about this last week. I did an interview with the NBA's deputy commissioner, Mark Tatum, that uh, included some of the NBA's closing thoughts on the bubble experience, but it also just tried to wrap up what things are like here now that we've reached October. Um, So be sure to check out that piece. It'll have even more details. I can tell you first off, I mean, when we first got here in July, it was just bustling. There's probably roughly one third as many people here now as there was back then. When you walk around to exercise, for example, a lot of the people who I was seeing every single day, Brad Stevens, uh, Michael Malone, I mean, you know, those types, uh, you know, Tim Connolly of the Nuggets, they've all gone home sort of one by one by one. So the the oval uh, walking track that we all use has gotten, uh, you know, significantly emptier here over the last couple of days. I've also noticed this is more of like a naturalist type thing, Michael, but the seasons have changed. So a lot of the animal life that I was seeing in, you know, kind of Uh the peak of summer is now gone. The butterflies have moved on for, uh, I guess, probably warmer pastures. And we are left with, I saw a deer the other night. I saw a raccoon. I saw a hawk just sitting on the side of the road, looking like he wanted some dinner. Um, I'm just seeing different things out there that that you would normally expect. And I think in in part because they're reclaiming Disney World. They're like, there's nobody here. This is our turf, right? So the animals are kind of like coming for us in a certain way, which has been kind of fun. Um, I think you're also seeing from the NBA a deep paranoia, if you want to call it that, you know ultra vigilance they really want this thing to end with no positive tests that is something that they have made a gigantic priority so we are getting extra text message alerts every single day about what is and isn't allowed they've tightened up some rules they don't want us eating or drinking really at the arena anymore um, because they're, they're trying to make sure there's no positive tests uh, they've just taken things, just ramped it up, and, and it could be in part because NBA Commissioner Adam Silver has now joined the bubble and they're trying to you know hold everything to the highest possible standard with the Boston Town. That would be totally understandable, but there has been kind of like a recommitment to all these strict rules that we've been living under. They have opened up certain parts of the campus that we didn't previously have access to. So I actually was able to walk into the uh, the Disney gift store. I had not been there since July, Michael, when they were doing July 4th decorations. It's now in full Halloween mode. I can't tell you how trippy that was to realize that like three months just poof went by. Um, I-, I was glad it wasn't Christmas decorations, I'll be honest, because that would have really, really thrown me for a loop. Um, you know, past that... Uh, I think that you're getting a lot of weariness, a lot of people looking like zombies. I'll confess, I was counting the days here um, when we were getting down to the, the possibility of a sweep. I had to scramble and make you know travel reservations, which now have had to be changed. Uh, but it, it kind of snuck up on us pretty quickly. I was doing a great job of not counting the days until LA won Game One, and then all of a sudden, you know, it became clear. Hey, we might not be here for the full uh, seven-game series. You know, what's the next step? So I think there's a lot of that going on. A lot of people missing their kids and, and wanting to get back uh, as quickly as possible. I think that's the general sense of the bubble. I wouldn't say it's it's negative. I would just say that this experience has sort of run its course. It does feel like we're getting pretty close to everybody, you know, being ready to go home and and to call it a wrap and to call it a win. Um, and at the same time, you're getting you know this real vibe from the league of hey, let's finish strong, let's run through the tape, let's make sure we don't let up and and have the final spoiled by a, you know a positive test or, or something else like that.
2: So I hope that. You know, if if our listeners take one thing away from everything that you just said, it's that butterflies fly south for the winter, which I didn't know, Ben. So thank you for, for enlightening me on that topic. Well, they have
1: migratory patterns i mean i i guess i should really (laughs) dig in to know exactly where they're going but certainly there is a you know transition element for them and uh they've transitioned the heck out of disney world i can say that (laughs) because i love photographic butterflies and there's probably five percent as many right now in october as there was back in july and all the most beautiful ones are out of here michael um, and that's going to be the same way for reporters, by the way. You know, within about a week or two, all the most beautiful reporters like myself are going to be getting up mm. out of Walt Disney World after a three month stay. I'll also say this, Tom uh, one aspect of bubble life that I've really found, especially um, as soon as the finals started, I got an awful lot of text messages from people saying, wait a minute you're still at disney world how long have you been there <laughs> and i and i do think um you know this the marathon element to this uh, bubble experience for more casual people, for you know, non-open floor globe members who obviously you guys are locked into every show and paying attention every step of the way, you know, throughout the playoffs and the the regular season restart and the scrimmages and you know all all the buildup, I think for casual fans who are maybe you know seeing NFL games now, seeing college football games on, and then realizing the NBA is somehow still playing, I think for them it feels like I've been in here for like a year and I can understand that too. I mean, the, the groundhog day element to this entire experience is something that will always stick with me. Uh,
2: it's, it's, kind of reminds me of, um, like being at summer league towards the end and just how, I mean, for me personally, <clears throat> it's super depressing. I've only been there on the last day once, I think in my career, but it's so bleak when you think about like the start and how many more people were there and just different energies. So that's the only thing I could really relate it to. Is it kind of like that? Because I know you've been for the whole shebang in Vegas many times. Yeah, no doubt. Look, it definitely felt like that,
1: especially during game two, which is easily the flattest finals game I will ever attend in my entire life and nothing will be close to it. I mean, that felt like a preseason game, like a summer league game. It felt like one of the scrimmages where they were barely even keeping score when we first got here to the bubble. It was such a strange and just like energy sucked out of the building type experience because of Miami's injuries and because of how easy LA was kind of doing everything that it wanted to do. So it's certainly comparable to the end of the summer league there. I would say that, you know, game three, change the dynamic here a little bit, right? It puts some pressure on the Lakers. I think it's going to get some people locked back into the series. They're going to have to prove some stuff. But I also think that there's even a a greater level of weariness and just, you know, people are exhausted, mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. You know, just to give you an example, Tom, like there's supposed to be a dinner, you know, tonight that the NBA is organizing for us, um, which is always um, welcome news because the food here on a daily basis isn't really the best. And so anytime we get a, a special dinner, it's always a big treat. And I'll be honest, just sitting here at almost 1 p.m., I don't even know if I want to go. I've already seen these people for three oh. months. I think I might just want to go walk in circles around the around the property and take some photos of whatever butterfly I could find, Michael. It's just like one of those things where you're just so worn down. I'm not trying to whine about it. I'm not uh, trying to complain about it. I'm just trying to give you the The sensation here in the bubble, which is we've all been here a long time. You know, we can see the finish line. It's almost taunting us. And, uh, you know, I think from that standpoint, uh, it's hard to explain to people who aren't down here. And I think Chris Paul made that point to me, you know, more than a month ago when he was hailing Michelle Roberts for, you know, committing her entire, um, you know, three months to this experience Mm -hmm. of living in the bubble that he just felt like the leaders needed to be down here going through it and and really getting it and understanding what they were putting the players through and i feel the same way i'm going to do my absolute best to convey the bubble experience in my book which you can pre-order on amazon bubble ball um but it's it's very difficult and i know that sounded kind of sad not trying to take shots at any of my colleagues we've just seen an awful lot of each other and uh you know home is calling our names
2: yeah well it's almost over ben you're almost home free. You've done a tremendous job. Um, I was watching The Shining over the weekend just because it's it's October, getting in the mood. And I couldn't help but think about how that movie relates to your situation in a lot of ways. So, almost home free, my friend.
1: I appreciate that. All right, man. I think on that very dark and depressing <laughs> note, we should call it the end of another Open Floor podcast. Guys, We got a bunch of questions, but send them in, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We will double back later this week after having seen game four. Will the Lakers take control? Will the series even up? We'll dig into all of that, and we'll take your questions that are non-finals questions. I know some of you guys are looking forward. Some of you are asking hypothetical, um, you know, big picture type questions. We're glad to address those as well. Let us know what's on your mind. We don't have too much basketball to discuss, Michael. We're almost headed into what could be a pretty long off season, so keep those questions coming. We're always glad to tackle anything you've got. All right, we are on Apple Podcasts, so search for us. Type in "Open Floor." That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say "Rate and Review." tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. I'm on Instagram at Oliver. I am on Twitter at Ben Golliver. If you want more Jimmy Butler talk, check out my Washington Post newsletter. It will be posting Monday. It's free every Monday. Check it out and be sure to follow our coverage at washingtonpost.com sports. Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. Follow what he's doing at 538 and GQ. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you.
2: Talk soon, Ben.